This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hello, and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. So today, we have exciting things to talk about. You know when you pick up a book sometimes, and on top of the book, or maybe not on top of the book, but printed on the actual cover, (laughs) is a quote from someone who seems not to be super involved in the book about how awesome the book is. This book changed my life. George Authorston. (laughs) How did that quote get there? What is it for? Why would people put it on a book? This entire podcast, we will answer that question as best as we can with the help of an amazing editor, Diana Foe from Tor Books. Diana, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you got into comics and science fiction fantasy publishing, what you're doing now with your career? Great. Um, First of all, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm super excited to basically talk about the power of endorsements. (laughs) (laughs) But a little bit about myself. I am an editor at Tor Books and Tor.com Publishing. I've been working with them for about six years, but I've been in publishing for a little over a decade at this point, working um, at various houses. I've had various positions outside of editorial. I started publishing in international sales and marketing. And I think that also has kind of impacted the importance of blurbs for me, you know, um, being part of the Salesforce family. So I've had experience there. I've also worked for the Science Fiction Book Club for a little while, if we all remember book clubs. Um, they're, they're still great, my heart of hearts. Now they come in boxes. Yes, they do. It's fantastic. And I also have a degree, which is like tangibly relevant Um in performance studies, but it's only relevant because my project was about performance in the steampunk community. And I only mentioned that because that is partly how I got my job as a blogger for Tor.com, blogging about steampunk. I did not know that. Yes. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I am like a super geek about geeky things, and I have a degree to prove it. Opening doors with hobbies. Yes, exactly. Uh, I also um, run a blog about multicultural steampunk called Beyond Victoriana, so that also played a role as well. But after I got my master's, I was like, oh, I want to go back to publishing. And luckily, a spot in Tor Editorial had opened up around then, and I've been there ever since. And how did you get into comics? Oh, well, I've always been a fan of anime and manga. So that has, like, been my foundational experience in comics, actually, before uh, I even got into Western comics, even though, of course, I read Calvin Hobbes, Garfield, Doonesbury, stuff like that. And I got hired for tour partly because they wanted someone to uh, work with Seven Seas Entertainment, which is the U.S.-based manga company that Tor works with. So they're their own separate company. We just help distribute their books. And from there, that kind of helped me get into the wider world of comics on the publishing side as well. So I also have experience a little bit with For Second, you know, I I met you through like Mocha, through a mutual and through yeah. a mutual friend of ours. Um, yep. Yeah. So you did some freelance editing, and now you've been editing some graphic novel projects at Tor. Yes. My most recent graphic novel is called, uh, well, that I edited is called The Furnace by Prentice Rollins, and that just came out over the summer. It's a sci-fi standalone. Thank you. It's, it's a really good book. I hope people pick it up. Um, and also, full disclosure, yeah. I, <laughs> I know I have to mention it, right? Um, I am also working on Allison's uh, duology about time-traveling samurai called Cronin. Yes. I am very happy about this. Diana is great. <laughs> yes, you do, you do come up, we have to say. Um, okay, so today we want to talk about blurbs or endorsements. Dana, can you tell us, like, what are they first for people who maybe haven't thought about these or encountered them yet? Okay. So blurbs, which are also known as advanced praise or author praise or just additional quotes, uh, perhaps, are, you know, as I mentioned earlier, basically endorsements. They're um, little snippets of impressions, reviews, Good stuff, basically, that an author says about another author's book. And blurbs are basically, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about how they're used in the various parts of the industry. But from the reader's side, it's 
you know, usually used to help encourage a reader who may be browsing online or in a bookstore. They don't really know what the book is about, but they might recognize the name of someone else that we put, you know, on the cover that talks about how great this book is. So the reader might be, hey, I know so-and-so, and they said they love this book. I love their work. Perhaps I should try to check it out. So you said you had a background working in international sales and marketing, and that kind of came into play with how you think about blurbs. How are all these things kind of playing into how you're thinking about blurbs? So from the reader side, they see it as like, oh, it's kind of like a review of a book by someone that you know. And I think that in concept in general, people are familiar with, like reviews for movies or TV or video games, internet critics, what have you. Um, it's like a formalized word of mouth kind of like, exactly. this person I like likes this thing. Stamp of approval yes. from amazing individual X. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, you know, very understandable, like why a reader would be interested in blurbs. Uh, looking at from the sales side, when you're an editor and you have a project, it's usually you and your assistant who's actually read the book and love it and can describe in great rambling detail why you love this book. And when presenting to sales, you really only have a very limited amount of time to actually tell them, yes, this book is great, and here are the reasons why. And one of the pieces of supporting evidence, so it's not just your opinion to back you up, is the level of blurbs and the number of blurbs that you get to show sales that, yes, this book is good, because not only I think it's great, but these people who you also know and know their sales numbers you know, think it's great as well. I remember like early on my, in my career, we'd be at sales conferences and looking over these tip sheets, which are just basically, you know, book descriptions and sales information and any other relevant information that we would need in order to sell a book to an account. Um, so we'd be looking over these details and we'd always check like, oh, okay, so, hey, this name stands out. Like, I know Neil Gaiman, you know, or I know like Tamara Pierce, like I know Jane Yolen, like, and you see, you know, people who are saying marvelous things about this book, which I have not read yet as a salesperson sitting in this meeting, then suddenly I'll pay so much more attention to how important this book is. And it does, you know, to an extent, raise the profile of a book that depending what kind of blurbs you get, and depending on how early you can get them in, I guess, the publishing season, per se, so... Well, that leads in very well. Yeah. So tell us all about this timing. Like, when are you starting to think about books? Should when should authors be starting to think about books? How does that whole process? And by books, you mean blurbs? I do. You are correct, (laughs) Allison. (laughs) I mean, we're always thinking about books. That's why we're here. (laughs) Indeed. Um, So everyone will give you a slightly different answer, but a general ballpark agreement about a certain time period per se. So when I have a manuscript and I know it's finished, the next step for me would be like, all right, now I have to go start shopping for blurbs. That's how I say like, oh, time to shop for blurbs, as if we could actually buy them, which we can't and we don't, because that would be unethical. (laughs) To to be clear, because I I don't think people actually know this, like blurbs are strictly unpaid, like you Mm -hmm. do not pay for blurbs. Right. If you pay for something, it's marketing. That's something else. Because I don't think people know that, actually. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating. I think we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, um, Allison, about how blurbs in itself is one of those pieces of, I guess, support an author gives entirely for free, you know, just out of the goodness of their heart and their own enthusiasm. And it's true. Like, whenever I solicit for blurbs, it's always a matter of, like, asking someone, hey... I have this book, it's really great, and then I ramble on the email why it's great a little bit. You know, and I say, like, I have a deadline, you know, if you're interested, I can send you a copy for you to read, and then they say yes or no. And these are busy people, that's why, right. from your perspective, it's like, I've got a finished manuscript, time to start sending it to people, because if you can give them six months, they're more likely to read it than if you give them, like, a week. Right, exactly. And so, basically, the longer lead time you can give... Uh, an author to read a manuscript in order to blurb it, 
the higher success rate that you'll get the blurb. Because I think authors in general um, are very generous in supporting other authors. And so if they're definitely interested, they'll at least give it a shot, um, as long as they can have time. And, you know, if you're on deadline, if you're trying to juggle your writing life and your job and your family life or something like that, then it can be very difficult, um, especially if you're an author of like a certain level of popularity, then you get blurb requests all the time from every single editor that you know, and possibly some of your friends too. And authors themselves can't always say yes all the time, even if they wanted to. So whenever I can, I definitely try to give a long lead time to authors. Ideally, it would be six months. Mm -hmm. But so you're thinking like, as soon as the manuscript is ready, but is that like a year before the book comes out? Or is it a year and a half? Or is it six months? Like what, what kind of range are you looking at there? And is it different for prose and comics and from comics printed in the US and comics printed in China? Those are a lot of questions nestled into each other <laughs> like Natsuyoshi dolls. <laughs> um, but uh, to, to, to break it down a bit, uh, when looking at my timeline for getting blurbs, the publishing season when I start talking to sales starts roughly about a year before the book comes out. However, I'll still have meetings and discussions in-house with the publisher and other groups much earlier than that, just talking about the potential of the book, how we were going to position it, you know, and stuff like that. So when asking, like, how far ahead do I need blurbs until the pub date, it could be a year before pub, it could be a year and a half before pub, but the deadline I try to personally hit is to start getting at least a couple of good blurbs in before my first major round of meetings of sales. And that happens a year out. Yeah, And the last possible date is the like last. two weeks before the book goes to the printer or something around then? Well, like the last reasonable date would be, you know, uh, in order to be part of the jacket copy. Yeah. You know, even if like sales didn't know it much earlier, you know, at least it'll be on the cover. And I'll, I can always email sales, by the way, like, hey, look, I just got this fantastic blurb from President Obama. <laughs> and he and only I, reads one exactly. science fiction book a year, and God damn it, it's ours. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, so if it's a big enough blurb, of course, like, no matter how much time before actual pub date, I'll just drop it because sales would be like, whoa, and then they'll call up all their accounts and be like, guess what? President Obama's going to read this book, and, and he thinks it's great, and yada, yada, and then, yeah. That's how it works. So obviously, it's super amazing if President Obama decides to read this book. And you definitely want to kind of like rearrange everything possible to make sure that blurb gets on the book. Mm -hmm. But are there ever blurbs that you get or from different people in different areas that you're just like, I don't know how useful this would actually be to put on the book? Um, well, when I solicit for blurbs, um, I usually have a very... You think about it in advance? <laughs> right. I do. I do think about it in advance. Um, and again, I think the opinions can vary from like editor to editor about how you select people to solicit blurbs from, um, you know, how often you come back and like refresh your list. Uh, you know, and stuff like that. And by refresh my list, I mean, like, how many times you go out and solicit for blurbs. For me, yeah. ideally, like, you know, I would do it once. I would, like, have my list of authors, reach out to them all at once, and give them time and just wait for the blurbs to roll in. But I do know, you know, some editors who do it in waves. And I'm like, how can you do that in waves? How can you put yourself through that stress of, like, constantly, like, contacting people? You know, it's also just an opportunity thing. Like, you know, if I was at a, a conference or, like, a book event and I end up, like, you know, you know, talking with, like, this fabulous author and we, like, really vibed and I happened to mention someone's book and they seemed really interested, of course, you know, immediately I'd follow up the next day of an email saying, hey, I know you were interested. If you're free, would you like to blurb this? Yeah. You know? But there's also, I think, the situation where you're, like – okay, I'm editing this kid's book about a princess. And, you know, maybe you're at a conference and you're talking to Robert Kirkman, the creator of The Walking Dead. And he's like, oh, I love princesses. Um, I really only write about zombies mostly for adults. 
doing like terrible things, uh, you maybe wouldn't necessarily be like, you should blurb this princess book. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So like that does matter. Uh, As I mentioned, when I select authors to approach, I do think about do they write in the same genre as this book? Are they like an adult author versus a YA author? Or are they a YA crossover author? Like how effective would their endorsement be for this book? And I do think actually there is a difference um, that I've noticed between the prose books I work on in genre and comics. Because I just have a, I, you know, from seeing the blurbs that come up. Um, and also I think it depends on the imprint. Because for example... For image books, I see all these blurbs from like all these people from my like, television or comedians or they're like rock stars or something. And first of all, I'm like, how do you get those connections? I want those connections. <laughs> um, and second of all, like because they're just general big pop culture names, it was still helpful to see that on you know this on this volume of Saga. And I, I guess, but Saga is also an incredible series. So, of course, everyone wants to talk, you know, about great things about it. Uh, so that's what I'm, I'm really curious about to myself. Where is the gray area between... Um, is this person so famous that we should just put their name on the book no matter who they actually are? Sting really liked my <laughs> dragon book. <laughs> and so did President Obama and Neil Gaiman. Yeah, uh-huh. I know. And it'd be the know. one context you're like Neil Gaiman. You're like, oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll put you on the back cover. It's fine. So again, full disclosure: Diane and I have been just started talking about blurbs for Volume Two of my book. So this is like the third or fourth conversation that we have had about blurbs in the last like week and a half. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things that Diana said to me uh, was that how she felt like because comics. We could have a whole podcast just about whether or not this is reasonable, but people do tend to think of comics itself as a genre, and so, like, (laughs) it matters a little bit less, is this a fantasy author, is this a science fiction author, is this a memoir, like, it's kind of like, is it about the right type of person? You know, you're not having, again, you're not having, like, the Walking Dead guy blurb your princess book, but, like, is it sort of ballpark-ish? Yeah, it's fine in a way that it, it, I got the sense that it's less true for prose books. Yeah, I, f- I feel like it can be very precise for prose books. But I also think that depending on the popularity level of the in-person blurbing, it can also be kind of hand-wavy. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings up another question, which is how involved are authors in this process? You know, Diana, are you kind of just like, I made this list of blurbing people. It is a secret. I'm just going to do this. Or <laughs> is... when you get the book in the mail, you will find out who blurbed it. <laughs> it's magic. Are you reaching out to all the people? Is your author reaching out to people? Is your author helping make a list? Like how how does that process go? So this is my personal process because I also know that um, certain editors have different styles, and also you know, in conversation with the agent, they might have. Uh, you know, different agreements about how the blurbing process goes. But in general, what I do is that I do have like a list that I make myself. Like, these are the people that I like to reach out to that I think are relevant for the book, um, that I think would enjoy the book, and that I think are free. <laughs> that have their schedule open, possibly, and can look at it. And But I always ask the agent and the author if they have their own wish list of people that they would like to, you know, see the book, and also add that to my list as well. Primarily, you know, I would be serving as a point of contact of like contacting these people for blurb solicitation and not necessarily the author, but there are always exceptions. Like if the author has, you know, a very close relationship with the blurber per se and feel comfortable asking, because that's the other thing. Can have a close relationship with someone, but it's also okay to be like, hey, editor, can you ask in my stead? Because I feel like it's more professional that way. And that's also cool. Uh, What about if an author is like, well, I have this list of 50 people. Can you email them all? (laughs) Might you be like, why don't you tackle at least three quarters of this list? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, if an author did have a list of 50 people, then I'm not sure if they're curating enough themselves um, personally. But but also, you know, I would always take like names under like consideration. So I might not necessarily always add them for one reason or another, but I'll definitely ask and be like, all right, I'll definitely like, you know, reach out to, you know, certain people that that I also agree would be beneficial, uh, you know, for blurbing. 
practice varies, you know, depending on whatever relationship the editor has with the agent. But, you know, some agents like to know who is being solicited for blurbs. Um, you know, and some agents are fine with just me, like, keeping, like, you know, the list to myself other than the input that they gave to it. So I, you know, personally think it's less professional awkwardness on um, the author's end, uh, most importantly, if they don't necessarily know the full list themselves. Because once they do, then there's always the inevitable, like, anxiety that might come and they're wondering, like, oh my gosh, what if this person said yes? What if they said no? Are they reading right now? What if they bump into them in the street? I really want to stress how awful this is. <laughs> it's bad. Like, it's the torture of thinking about somebody else being asked to read your book. I don't know why, because theoretically, that's what you want as an author, is for people to read your book. For some reason, this one particular version of it is very stressful. <laughs> so do you want to talk about that that stressfulness a little? Like, is this something that you find stressful? Is this something the authors that you work with find stressful? Like, how how do you help them deal with it if they are finding it stressful? Theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> um, well... I think primarily the purpose of me handling, you know, the blurbs up front, you know, part of it is just to take the stress off the author. So, like, just give me these names and you don't have to worry about handling any of this because it's my job, not yours, you know? Um, Do you start out with some sort of, like, fair warning? You know, when I email 10 people about blurbs, usually I get one or two responses or, like, is there, like, a conversation about how all that works? Well, like, you know, I just generally keep in mind, it all depends also on the author, too, because each editor-author relationship is different. And so for some authors, require a little bit more hand-holding just to explain the whole process and what it means. Um, and other authors, if they ask questions, of course, I'll answer. You know, so it's it's very case-by-case um, -case basis. In general, once I solicit for blurbs, you know, I keep... Uh, both the author and the agent posted, you know, once I start receiving um, the actual blurbs from them. I do try to be as transparent as possible as I can, but I also know that when it comes to blurbs and stuff like that, being too transparent might just be a source of anxiety. Yeah. So here's another thing. How, like, logistically, how does this work? So you're clearly, you're, you're emailing, presumably emailing people. Mm -hmm. You're not, like, showing up at their door with a book. Uh, or calling them on the phone. Right. So uh, are you... Are you emailing the author? Are you emailing their agent? How do you go about doing this? Yeah, it's a good question, because I think, especially in an industry where it's small, everyone tends to know each other to, to some extent, um, unless you don't. Uh, so I always try to be mindful of, like, authors are busy. And I also do try to, like, respect their time and their boundaries. Actually, the first thing I do once I have, like, the list set up, before I even say, like, all right, I'm definitely going to contact these people, I, like, check all their websites, all their social media to make sure they're, like, not on deadline, not on hiatus, like, not taking blurbs for a certain period of time, because then they're just going to say no anyways. So it's a waste of my time. You know, and also just to, like, generally check in about what their blurb policy is. Because uh, a lot of authors do have it on their website, you know, saying like, oh, for any inquiries, just like for media requests or school visits or stuff like that, they would usually have something on their website saying, oh, for blurb requests, and then they list whatever preference they have, whether it's to contact them directly through email or contact their agent, and the agent contacts them. So I just make sure to adhere to like whatever personal guidelines or boundaries that the author had set up. Yes, I've definitely had the situation where I'm like, I talked to the author or I looked at the author's website and they're like, not doing blurbs right now. And I'm like, okay, dear my author, this person's not doing blurbs right now. I don't think we can ask them. And then the author's just like, well, let me just ask them myself. And then sometimes got in a, oh, they said it was totally fine and they really want to blurb this book. And I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, and I, I totally understand why that happens, right? Like where... Sometimes it's a book that that author is particularly, like, one of the books that they're actually excited about, and not just, like, the sea of random blurb requests that comes in, but I also am a little, like, this makes me feel very silly for being, like, oh, it just seems like this person is not doing this right now. I don't think we should reach out to them. And then sometimes they are blurbing things regardless. And also, that's the nice yeah. thing about talking to people's agents, because presumably they'd have a pretty... 
I would hope, have a pretty complete idea of, like, what's on their author's plate, at least professionally, Mm -hmm. at, like, a given time. Oh, their book is due tomorrow. Maybe now is not the best time. Right. Or worse, their book was due three months ago. Now is definitely not the best time. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've definitely had conversations um, where, you know, even if, like, the author and I are, like, just hanging out at a conference or something, you know, and they they express interest in the book. I had a conversation that also had, oh, by the way, but please still contact my agent, even though I am interested, because I have a hard time saying no. Yeah, I have several (laughs) friends who who I will leave nameless, but if they listen to this podcast, they definitely know I'm talking about them, who at some point had to be, I think they had to be like, I love all of you. Please, please, please ask my agent. I hate having this conversation so badly. I literally can't Mm -hmm. blurb everybody's books. Even if I only blurb my friends' books, I physically don't have time. And it really stresses me out to have to say no to my friends. So even if we are the bestest, bestest friends in the whole world and see each other every day, please still ask my agent and don't ask me. (laughs) Right. Uh, So that brings up another question, which is publishing is obviously very interconnected. Like, you know, you work at Tor. You or your colleagues have contacts with a lot of science fiction fantasy people. Probably all of the science fiction fantasy and people in the industry by some sort of first or second or third degree connection. How often is it that you get a blurb and it's it may not appear this way from the reader who's looking at the book, but like the blurb is from like I go to cons with you all the time and I'm blurbing your book because I like you, like fellow author, or like this is a fellow author at your publisher, like someone who there's some sort of connection with rather than Sting or President Obama, who I'm assuming that you're not you're not closely uh <laughs> yeah, closely related to. I've definitely worked with authors who've um I've went to multiple times for blurbs simply because the genre there's only so many writers <laughs> basically and so you end up like hey and and then you also realize over time that certain people share your taste in books and will happily blurb your books because you share the same taste and they get excited when you talk about it but I also know that they still have to be like relevant to the project so their blurb would, would be helpful like sales wise yeah. so it's not just like hey person like I know you just generally like my list and here's my newest project and they're you know and here you can read it for a blurb uh, you know I still consider that they have to be useful to the project itself and not just because they like reading my books which is great though you know it's nice to know um, and so for like the, the friend to like I guess the colleague ratio of, of how familiar I am and whether I have like a general you know corral i suppose of authors that i go to i actually don't and i assume the same is for authors too like i have a lot of friends in comics so i would not ask to blurb my book because they do middle grade memoir mm-hmm. and i have an adult science fiction book for yeah. instance so they can be my best friend in the world who would blurb every book if i asked them to but it would not be helpful for either one of us mm-hmm. yeah i mean this is really interesting because I have a much better ratio of hearing back from people who are who I'm at least friendly with mm-hmm. um, than random people that I approach about blurbs. I think it really all depends on the project, on your own pitching skills as an editor. One of the most helpful things about the soliciting process for blurbs that that is when, you know, I I present my pitch to someone about the book that. Um, has never encountered the book before. Like, even sales has not heard about this book yet. But look, I'm approaching you, person, and if they are instantly interested in reading it, then I'm like, yes, I'm going to keep this for my book jacket copy because it was that good. <laughs> You're like, kind of practicing the old elevator pitch. Kind of. Right, yeah. right, exactly. And I'm always, like, constantly surprised, too, because I do do a lot of, you know, so, you know, solicitations where I may not necessarily know the person very well, or maybe we've just like know each other, like because we run in the same circles, or you know, they just might be like a person totally out of the blue for me socially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they come back and say yes, that's you know one of the most exciting feelings to have, aside from getting the blurb itself. You know, that uh, knowing that like wow, like I am. So happy that you love books as much as I do, that you just want to read this book and see if you can say something great about it. That's It's just so heartwarming. <laughs> and ideally from the 
the blurber blurber's perspective uh in a perfect world they get to have an excuse to make time to read a book for pleasure but still have it count as work and they get to read a fun book and then they get to write at most a paragraph of text that an editor will take something from and then they get to feel good about themselves mm-hmm. like that's a pretty good deal actually like in an ideal world because i think it's hard for us a lot of us to make time to just read books right ironically but we so we've been talking a lot about like we're using the word useful a lot and i uh very helpfully on, on gina's list of questions is a question that i actually also have which is like so not all books have blurbs on them obviously uh when do you feel like it's useful to make sure that you get them? Like if, when does, when do you feel like it's like a case for like, it's worth putting in the legwork to get a blurb for this book? Well, it could actually vary between genres or between houses. Um, And I think that's also one of the big, you know, that could be one of the differences too, between um, graphic novel publishing, you know, and book publishing. But I've always been taught as a book editor that it is important to at least get some sort of outside endorsement, whether it's blurbs or whether it's advanced trade reviews or something to be part of the book jacket copy. And if it doesn't make it in one edition, it could also make it to like the next edition. So if it didn't make it onto the hardcover, we can still try to put some sort of blurb or review endorsement onto the trade paperback copy. And it's interesting because I have seen books on the graphic novel side that don't necessarily have blurbs, but they're still like incredible books. And I think, you know, and perhaps, you know, they were just promoted in a different way, or they found their, you know, readership through like a different method. And so I'm actually really curious if you could shed some light, Gina, about this. I mean, I think there's a few things here. One of them is that blurbs for a book are also very age dependent. Mm -hmm. So you don't look at a lot of picture books, Mm -hmm. for example, and see blurbs on the cover. Right. That's like this other picture book author said this book is great, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's not necessarily the metric that people are using to buy picture books. And the same is actually true for comics for young readers to some extent, like chapter books, some middle grade stuff. You know, people are more interested some of the time in the cover illustration looking super engaging, possibly there being a reading line on the book that's like the most magicalist of all train adventures mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so that people are really clear about what the book is about uh, because they're not necessarily looking for like You know, as a middle school author, I can say that, you know, these are the other 50 middle school age authors that I have read and children will be able to identify all of them, Mm -hmm. you know, in the same way that adult readers are kind of hopping over and choosing books by like, I'm a literary fiction author, this literary fiction person blurbed this book, therefore I will like it because I like their work. Yeah, I start seeing them more in YA titles. It's like a teenager, in theory, is like starting to be aware of specific authors and following them. And uh, and I also think that the package design in comics, um, you know, what the cover looks like, can be something that is important and sometimes trumps blurbs going mm-hmm. on it. Because sometimes the person who's doing the book creates an illustration that's so beautiful or a cover design that's so beautiful that you're just like this is just going to like knock you out. It's really striking. We don't want to ruin it by putting mm-hmm. too much text on it. Where I feel like prose book covers tend to, in many cases, like take a more graphic approach that I think works better to have a blurb text on it. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of the really, the things that's been really fun and interesting to me, working on Cronin with a imprint like Tor that mostly does prose books, is that one of the reasons I was really excited to work with Tor is because I felt like this is a book that I would love for people who don't normally read comics to read. And I think we ended up with a cover that really sits in the middle of these two. Like it's very graphic, but it still has like a cartoon character on the front of it. So it's like, it's very obviously a graphic novel, but a lot of parts of the cover treatment are more like what you'd find in a kind of 
slightly hipstery science fiction book. And I, mm-hmm. I think that I'm, I'm really interested to see. How they, it's been a very interesting process because I, I do feel like it's kind of halfway in between. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and I, I do have, to, for the record, I have a, a blurb on my cover that's the relevant part of this. <laughs> <laughs> From my friend Faith, who was very nice and said a nice thing about my book. Thank you, Faith. Um, I do think that there's another kind of metric of unusefulness that I think about when I'm thinking about blurbs, too, which is just that sometimes authors will be like, I know this person. I think we should reach out to them. And... um, you know, or like a person comes up in the discussion. And the the problem is not that they write like technological thrillers and this is a young read gra- reader graphic novel about friendship, but that the person is just not well known enough that mm-hmm. it would make sense to put them on a book cover. Right. You know, so sometimes people will be like, this person is an animator that works on an animated cartoons. And it's just like, and they're very cool. And like, we both, like I and the author both know them, but I'm like, does anyone in the Are book market? Are they Glenn Keane? Because otherwise <laughs> probably people don't know who this person is. Yes. If it's Rebecca Sugar, yeah. let's put it on the book. Um, otherwise... I don't know, you know, or like this person is an award winning mini comics person or, you know, this person's debut novel is coming out six months after mine. And you're just like, I just don't know that had like the impact of their name is enough that makes it worthwhile to be like, let's approach them, let's send them the PDF, like, let's do all this stuff because people will look at it and just be like, who is this? Mm-hmm. It's like the weird alchemy gut reaction of it is, I think, part of why people find it so stressful because it all feels very presumptuous because the whole point is that if you're getting people to blurb your book, if you're anything like a debut author or earlier in your career, you're trying to ask people who are kind of further along in terms of visibility than you uh, are. But that's so like the, the intimidation factor is like baked right in there. It's uh-huh. like right at the gate. You're like, I want you to blurb my book because you are more important than I am. And people care about you in a way they do not care about me. <laughs> so it's like, there's a lot, there's a lot wrapped up in that. Uh, the thing that I've said to a bunch of people since I'm thinking about it so much recently is very much that like blurbs are both, the most crassly commercial and the most uncomplicatedly benevolent part of the process in some ways. Because on the one hand, it's like, no, it's literally, you're just selling more books. It's an ad you're putting on the front of your book. It's like, (laughs) get people to pick your book up and flip through it. This is another tool in that arsenal. On the other hand, it's like, it's a nice thing that a person is doing for you for free because they just want to make your career a little bit better and they're not getting anything else out of it other than feeling like they're a good person and a thank you, and maybe a favor, maybe. And that's basically <laughs> it. And it's just sort of nice and also terrifying. Yeah. So, Diana, do you ever get blurbs when you get a book submitted to you? Like, you'll get a submission, and then the agent or the author is like, I have three blurbs from these people. This author was in a writing group with, like, Holly Black, and she thought it was great and has written a blurb for it already. Here you go. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've actually, uh, have had submissions. I came with blurbs and it's always fascinating because I also think that depending on the strategy the agent is using, the effectiveness of the blurbs can vary. Um, cause I have had agents who give blurbs, um, and they might be names that I recognize and might be names that I have no idea who they are, but Hey, look, it's a blurb. Someone else liked it. I feel like, again, it could be mixed results because, you know, on the one hand, it could theoretically, and, and here's why I'll say theoretically, save legwork for me later of getting a blurb. The submission version of the manuscript is never the final version of the manuscript that gets published. So even if it came with blurbs from someone, I would feel that, like, if I do acquire this project and it goes, like, under my editorial, like, revision and becomes something entirely different uh, in that process, I would at least be obligated, if I want to keep that blurb, of reaching out 
to the person, say, thank you so much for supporting this author in the submission process. I acquired this project and we've you know, done some edits. Would you like to look at it again for a revised blurb? You know, and then then it's still asking them for their time to read it again. It was previously a horror story. Now it is a romantic comedy. Would you like to revisit it? Right. So that's why I feel, you know, I have like mixed feelings about blurbs coming in submission because I may not use them at all. If the project changes, um, if I think the person who blurbed it is inappropriate for the type of book it is. You know, and also like I've just seen submissions that come with like, a lot of blurbs as part of the packet and then the submission itself isn't very strong and i'm like how did how do these i guess we must all be friends really good friends did you, you know read this how good of a friend are they uh so in theory somebody listening to this podcast might be at a point in their career where people are asking them for blurbs especially if you're maybe early on in the, that part of your career how do you write a blurb, Diana? Like, what does that actually even mean? Like, do people, do you just ask somebody to give you, like, write a very punchy sentence that's less than 30 words or whatever? Or do you be like, write a paragraph and I'll pick from it? Like, how do, what are you asking for, for people? Uh, I'm actually very open. And people who have agreed to blurb a book, um, sometimes they do ask and response, like, are there certain things I should be saying? Um, what are some things that you'd like me to highlight the most? And and I'm fine with giving that sort of direction because I already agreed that they wanted to support the book. So I'm not, you know, putting words in their mouth. But I'd be like, oh, I would love a blurb that highlights the characterization or the world building. Or if you had a, if you're thinking about a comp that you would like to, you know, in your blurb and want to put it in there, that's fine too. So I'm fine with giving like those little nudges, but and I'm not you mean like a comparable title like right exactly. this is just like the homecoming of anissa which i really enjoyed which is a book that i just made up anyway <laughs> please continue yeah um no but i'm also just very open like because i am personally curious too about like you know authors like whatever raw feelings and emotions that they have about the book like this is their real impression and just put it out there um that is just fabulous you know and there's always like the caveat the author likes you know give to like oh feel free to like trim cut down adjust to fit it's fine some authors are actually really picky about when they give blurbs you know so some authors do have stipulations like you cannot change the wording at all It has to be exactly this and all of this, which makes things complicated sometimes. But for the majority of authors, though, when they want to support the book, they're like, here are some bunch of fabulous words I'm going to say and take it all or take one or that's fine. Okay. Have we gotten to the point? Has anybody submitted a like Kimash emoji blurb yet? Like just exclamation point, exclamation point, heart emoji, heart emoji, heart eyes emoji, kiss emoji. Like, because I definitely, that's the response that people often text to me when we're discussing books. But I don't know if we've gotten to the point in our digital apocalypse where we're actually having that on the cover. Although, no, I actually do kind of want that. That'd be amazing. Oh my gosh. If I had the right book that had like you know some sort of like digital you know communication theme like that like i would and the and it, but it have to be a blurb from someone if of cory doctorow yeah. gave like an emoji blurb or something of course i'd put that on the cover you know yeah. i mean i would also say with blurbs that short is usually better than long right you know i mean i think that Keeping your blurb to one sentence Mm -hmm. or perhaps one and a half sentences, two sentences at the most, rather than being like, okay, like, let me write, you know, 500 words or so about how I like this book or a whole paragraph about how I like this book, just because it does have to fit on the book cover. Right. It has to, like, literally be part of the copy. So so typically, most blurbs are, again, you're right, just one or two sentences, lots of descriptive adjectives. I do appreciate it when they're particularly, like, clever. Because I myself as an editor... Even with my experience writing copy, sometimes I feel like I use the same 20 adjectives all the time. Oh, yeah. And so it's nice to have a fresh eye from a writer who is more eloquent than I am. Yes. (laughs) Some new adjectives from them. Yeah. Also, I feel like, man, I... Now I'm thinking about this. I feel like if I am not at the point in my career where anybody's asking me for blurbs, I feel like I would probably do both the, like, 
one and a half sentence version and then would also maybe write a longer thing in a mm-hmm. case like if there's a context where it'd be helpful to have a short paragraph here have a short paragraph because mm-hmm. i feel like if nothing else the the editor will send it to the author and it'll make the author feel nice right and that's why not i'm already writing this email but yeah mm-hmm. do you, i want to have that punchy because you can't just extra- usually paragraphs aren't written such that you can just take an individual sentence out of it and have mm-hmm. it really amazing neil gaiman <laughs> <laughs> Stunning. (laughs) Now I just want, I think what I want is a romance, like a raunchy, fun romance novel that's blurred by Chuck Tingle and it's literally just an eggplant emoji and that's it. Maybe eggplant emoji, sparkle emoji, explanation point emoji. That's that's it. That's that's life goals now. Right. Shutting everything else down. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be turning in my manuscript. Instead, I'm going to begin a romance novel in pursuit of this blurb. (laughs) Is there a number of blurbs that's too many? Like, obviously, there's only so many blurbs you can fit on a book cover. Right. I've seen some books, though, where there's, like, four pages in the beginning that are just, like, short yelling about... Yeah, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how... Where do blurbs go on a book, and how do you decide to put blurbs in different places or do a different approach with blurbs? Yeah, so, like, there's a lot of different design strategies you can do with blurbs and and I think that's also one of the things that makes them really cool um, is that of course you see them on the book copy and you might see them on a retail site you know, like in the review section and all the list of blurbs um, but they can also be used in so many other places you know and used to position a book in a very certain way depending you know on the number of blurbs that you that you get and the quality of them and who's saying what um, so I've seen really great, arcs, which are advanced reader copies of books, where there is no final front cover because it's just a bunch of, like, blurby things, like, all over. I'm like, or having, um, gosh, I'm missing my terminology here. You know, in a tr- sometimes in a trade paperback when they have the insert, what is that called? There, it's a it's a step back. Step right? back, yes. When they have a step back, and wait, we now have to explain what a step oh, yes. back is. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is when you have a trade paperback book, and this happens in romance novels too, mm-hmm. where the cover stock it doesn't go all the way to the front cover. Okay, yeah. And there's like yeah. a quarter inch or a third of an inch a little stripe stripe right. down the side. That's like amazing," said Neil Gaiman. That's generally. Uh, like a different color it's like printed on a special paper and then on that page when you open the book there's some other sort of element if it's a romance novel uh novel it's going to be like partially naked people um but other other things have graphics they sometimes accompanied by like a cutout right like you just see the face and then you open it up and it's like the whole sitch but a lot of times the step back is just like here's an extra page that we filled with blurbs and like the book is full of signatures, so we just added this extra page so that we could add blurbs in it. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's there's many ways that, like, blurbs can appear on the book um, and also just, you know, be used, as, again, as part of the the ARC copy, even if not the final copy, because the ARC is primarily used as a marketing tool. And so it's really great when you have, you know, a design package to that arc that you give to booksellers or trade reviewers and they immediately say like oh like this is very attention grabbing because it's just full of praise just covered all over and so and i think that's also that also can be a very effective use for blurbs in general so what do you call it when and i feel like i see this mostly in books that have been reprinted a couple of times and over the process have become much higher profile books than they originally were, mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, in that front section where like an earlier edition might have been like, here's some other books by this author. And now it's like two to four pages of just page after page of like one to four sentence yelling. Is there like a term for that? Yeah, those are called front sales. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So sales in the front. Right. Front exactly. Got it. Um, and I've, de- you know, I've definitely seen that too, especially if you know, the super popular Zeitgeist books that everyone had praised endlessly after the first edition came out. They won a lot of awards in their first year, you know, and then you have that section where it's like an LA Times book prize winner, you know, New York Times best illustrated, and then the list just goes down and down. A life-changing work of genius. Yeah. (laughs) 
Neil Gaiman. <laughs> so I want to know why we're picking on him. <laughs> he does very kindly blurb many, many books. Good for him. So how how big a deal are blurbs? Like, is there a blurb that you get where you're like, this made this book? This book wasn't a thing. It was a debut book. People weren't excited about it. But like, now that I have this blurb. This is a sword I will use to cut through all barriers between this book and success. Right. I mean, I I've definitely have had instances where because I got a blurb, you know, and showed sales, then suddenly they were so much more interested because I can see the potential readership for the book be much more higher. Like if I got trying to think of uh, Dave Eggers, another person who blurbs books a lot. Yeah. And, and is and is you know moderately famous. Yeah. Or you know in science fiction fantasy, some someone like um, like N.K. Jemisin was like, "This is my favorite oh, thing." Man, if I could get you know a quote from N.K. Jemisin because she does she does not blurb. Yeah. Sorry, authors, but it is it is known that she's currently not blurbing and she doesn't really blurb at, yeah. at all. So, um, but you know, like for example, for um, a book, I got a blurb from Alan Moore. And that in itself is like a feat because you know, he is not He's kind the of most... a comics curmudgeon. Like he's not exactly right. running around the fields throwing blurbs at people, I don't feel like. Right, right. So he's kind of like he's not the easiest person to reach. You know? <laughs> 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 it's very true. So you know, um so it's you know so that that was very attention grabbing. For another book uh, I have, like I, I got a blurb from Bruce Coville, which was really huge for this like YA you know friendly book because he's such a classic children's author. And again, you don't often see blurbs from him. So like when you get authors that are, have a certain level of success and who are known not to blurb a lot, and then suddenly they blurb something, then it gets people's attention. Yeah. And by people, do you mean like? For instance, like your sales team or other people at the publisher or like readerships or like, like who do you feel like you're kind of waving that in the face of when that kind of thing happens? Primarily, it would be like people in-house. So it would be the publisher and the sales force because they would the, be the people who see it first. Yeah. And they'll be the ones who thus contact their accounts or suddenly like the marketing budget is, you know, is bigger than it had been previously because they can see the potential reach of it more. Um, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, or, I mean, it's also just like, we're going to put this on the front cover of the book, mm-hmm. and we're going to put the person who blurbed its name pretty large, and we're going to make sure it stands out right. on the package. And then also, you know, if we're thinking we're going to increase the marketing budget, maybe we want to do some social advertising mm-hmm. or industry advertising that features this blurb so people know that this author's coming out in support of this book. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's also how blurbs are super useful because they're just used, you know, by marketing in so many other types of advertising outside of the actual uh, book jacket copy. And uh, like, for example, a recent book that I have, and it's called The Black Odds Drums by Peter Jelly Clark. Uh, I, you know, it came out, you know, fairly recently and I got a blurb from Scott Westerfeld. Um, and nice. He's he's a great guy. He's awesome, and there were several reasons why I think this book has been very strong so far. Uh, and part of it was because it had a really great dynamic cover. People Google it; it's an awesome cover. I love it so much. Uh, you know, a, a, a very striking pose of a young teenage girl just like staring with like this resolute expression in her eyes and and you know and the background is all like fiery golds and the name and the title is in like large like type very prominent and posing um, and so it's a very eye-catching cover in itself but also the Scott Westerfeld blurb on the front immediately got people's attention because um, Peter J. Clark I think he is definitely a rising voice in sci-fi fantasy but this is his debut novella from us and so people in the wider readership may not know him but you know they would know scott so and that definitely helped get more attention on the book i mean it sounds like a thing that people should keep in mind when they're kind of wondering about this sort of thing because i think there can be a lot of like well it's just another popularity contest or whatever and it's like well here's the thing like people and publishers have hundreds of books that they're looking at and keeping track of and it sounds like it's kind of 
it's just another thing that you have that can make a book stand out mm-hmm. to people who have hundreds of books to deal with. Like, I know you have a lot to deal with, and these things are all blurring together in front of you, but here's something that might make it, like a really good cover or something, just make it ping your attention a little bit more than it might otherwise have can right. be useful. Because being we're human beings, and we can only pay attention to so many things for so long. While we're having this conversation, I was trying to think who the absolute pinnacle of all comics blurbers could be. Uh-huh. Um, I'm really curious what you're going to say now. <laughs> Bill Watterson. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. If you can go to his cabin. Well, uh-huh. It sounds like you both agree. So Yeah, no. It's excellent. I definitely have. And again, I will, I will leave this anonymous for the sake of whatever. But I, I have a couple of people who I'm acquainted with. Like somebody I used to work with who would be a very good blurb to get. And mm-hmm. I had somebody ask me totally reasonably, like, hey, you know, this guy I used to work with him. Can you get a blurb from him? And I was like really stressing out of it. And then it turned out that guy just has a flat policy of not ever blurbing anything. And it was like, I am saved <laughs> from having to lobby for you to come out of your cave and blurb this book. Bill Watterson is pretty awesome. Bill Watterson, yeah. Bill, Bill Watterson blurbed your book. Everybody would just come out of their offices and just, like, riot in the hallways. Like, <laughs> no more work today. Bill Watterson is blurbing our book. Yeah. So, Diana, we are coming to the close of this episode, which has all been about blurbs, and we've talked about them for an hour. And it seems like it's this, like, time-consuming, labor-intensive process that maybe you're thinking about two years before a book is coming out. It seems like it takes a long time. It's very complicated. How big of a part of your job is it? In the larger scheme of things, it's actually not that big as, say, like (laughs) editing the book or presenting to sales, even though it is a part of presenting to sales, or reading submissions (laughs) or paperwork. Um, You know, technically, it could be part of paperwork. I guess in terms of actual, you know, labor, I'm like, oh, you know, about like a week to think about like, what kind of authors would work? And then like an hour to research their websites to make sure that they're the right people. Um, and then actually like an afternoon, just like literally emailing people about this. And then it's just the waiting game. And there's so much of the waiting game in publishing in general. It's yeah. just another component to the waiting game to see where, like, you know, when they, if they reply, if they say yes or no. And then once they get the materials, whether they actually do have time to follow through. Because it's also like, you know, I'm very understanding if authors get busy or if life happens and I just can't make it even though they had showed initial interest. Like, it happens all the time. I assume you have certain, like, pre-scheduled on your end check-ins. Like, yes. people forget things and it's like, like, you said you would do this. Thank you so much. This is just a friendly... Re- and I feel like I actually have friends who I know have asked specifically to be reminded when they say they're going to blurb something. Because they're like, I will definitely forget that I said I would do this. Please remind me. <laughs> Hopeful brief reminders are always a good thing, you know, as well as long lead times. So is there anything else that you think the world needs to know about blurbs that we have failed irresponsibly to ask you about? Well, I do want to, like, you know, to you know to have, a, like, uh, an honest moment about blurbs is that when I think is one of the best qualities of blurbs uh, is that if you do get a, get them, you know, there's just such an act of generosity. But also, you know, no matter how well or poorly the book does, it's it's just reassuring to know that, like, yes, at least this person read it and liked it. And even if, like, this ended up selling, like, only a few hundred copies or one copy or whatever, or becomes a New York Times bestseller. At least they have that reassurance that, you know, these, you know, handful of people had dedicated their time and effort and love towards my book. And I do think, you know, that is something that authors truly appreciate because you can't, you can never tell whether a book will do well when it actually gets published, but at least you know you have some sort of, you know, gold stars you can walk away with if somebody believed in your book enough to take the time to like write a thing about it for you which is not nothing yeah like you know think of how many times you bothered writing a review on amazon or whatever like it, it's time out of their day they didn't have to spend to tell you that you're great and your book was great mm-hmm. yeah. i feel like there are there are a few more like crassly commercial marketing things that i can say which is that oh, please insert them <laughs> um it can 
always be useful with your your curated list of, you know, tops 20 people and not 100 people to send blurb requests to people who maybe you don't think they're all going to blurb it, but like you're going to see them on the convention circuit. You're going to be doing panels with them. They're people that you hope might mention the the book on social media, yeah. right? Because then you you as an author can follow up, see them at a show and be like, oh, I know you decided not to blurb my book, but I'm so happy that it now exists. I'd love to give you a copy. You're an author I really admire. Um, or ditto mailing. If you're not going to see people on, on the convention circuit, just being like, I know you were too busy to blurb this, but I just want to send you a copy because I think you're super cool. Maybe then they read it, they talk about it on social media, mm-hmm. um, they have read it by the time they do a panel with you at a convention. That is always useful. It's haunted right. them that they for- didn't blurb your book and they feel guilty about it. And they- so they blurb your next book. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's also, I think, a good way for publishers to establish connections with authors. Like, even yep. if they're like, hello, I am Diana. I work at the science fiction fantasy publisher that does adult books. This, like, children's nonfiction author is never going to do a book with me. But I think they're so great. You know, maybe five years down the road, they're like, I've moved from children's nonfiction to doing, you know, YA speculative stuff. And you sent me all those books because you thought I might be interested in blurbing things for readers and passing understanding. This probably was a poor construction of an example. But like, <laughs> um, you know, like it's a way to reach out to authors who are kind of doing slightly different things or working with other publishers who are kind of like, Definitely, I can't be like, pitch a book to me right now that I just saw that you signed your three book deal. Um, But like, maybe this is the first step in us being friends and having Mm -hmm. a longer term relationship where we get to work together sometime in the future. Yeah. I have definitely done that as well. So thank you for pointing out these these crassly commercial, you know, observations. Yeah. Or maybe as an author, you'll just, you know, hear about the books that I do and read them. And then when people ask you, what books do you recommend? They'll somehow coincidentally spout off the books that I have been sending you. Also, as an author, I will say to other people who are listening to this, consumed with anxiety about the idea of having somebody blurb your book, please remember that most people are basically nice. And most people like being flattered. And most people consider being asked to blurb a book flattering, at least a little bit. So nobody's gonna like, hate you forever. Because your editor asked them to blurb your book. The worst thing that will happen is they will be mildly annoyed and say no and forget about it. Five seconds later. That's (laughs) probably the worst case scenario. More likely is they will be like, pleased or guilty because they can't do it, and then we'll either do it or not do it. But the worst case scenario really is mild irritation, I will forget. They're not going to go on Twitter and be like, this asshole, this rando dared to ask me to read their book. Like, you're not going to, if somebody does that, you're not going to be the one who comes out looking bad in that scenario. No. I mean, if you do send a mass email... Oh, Don't God. send oh, a mass email. Oh, no. If you do spell the author's name incorrectly, don't do that either. <laughs> if you do send a personal email to the author about how amazing you think they and their work are and send it to the wrong author, um, those are all things that might pe- make people slightly more annoyed at that I- than that, so probably avoid. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like we're tacking all this stuff onto the end. If you want somebody to blurb your book, write an email to them specifically that you very carefully craft. Do not do a BCC with your entire address book. Please don't do that. Right. (laughs) Though I do have to say I have some luck emailing people that I do know already saying, hey, I have this book that I thought you would like. It has rocket ships and cats in it. Would you be interested in reading it for a potential blurb? Like, also, I hope you th- you're well. Like, and not necessarily, you know, like three paragraphs of description. You know, and sometimes that's great, and it's great, especially when you're like, I don't know you from Adam. I'm now writing this random email to you, but there's also a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, 
that person in publishing who I know personally, whose taste I like, they're emailing me about a blurb for this book. Like, also, I like rocket ships and cats, and they use lots of exclamation marks. Like, let me open this comic and see if I like the art. If there were only five exclamation (laughs) points, I don't know. Seven, though, that means something. (laughs) That's when you really got to make sure you open that email. I'm being sarcastic. I use a lot of exclamation points. I'm totally just owning myself here. Anyway. (laughs) All right. I think that we have covered this probably more thoroughly than any podcast has ever covered this topic. (laughs) Yes. Diana, where can people find you online if they are like, I am intrigued by this editor character? I wish to at her. How may I at this person? (laughs) Or read her blog about um, steampunk from many lands. Yeah. Um, So to do the plug thing um i do have a a blog on multicultural steampunk um you know it isn't updated as often anymore because suddenly i got super busy being an editor um but it has really great you know archives and content and just resources if you like resources i like resources uh it's called beyond victoriana and it's just you can find it at beyondvictoriana.com um, I also have a Twitter, and my Twitter handle is Writer Syndrome, all one word. I also technically have a Tumblr, uh, you know, under the na- name of Writer Syndrome. But again, I have not been, um, you know, you've not re- been a tumbling. I, I know I've not been reblogging as much as I should because then I got it's busy. It's not your primary work venue. It it is not my primary work venue. I mean, you you will definitely find me um, on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram under diana.m.fo, and the dots are periods. So 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 you can find me on Instagram um, and Twitter where I am the most active. Diana also goes to a bunch of panels and uh, I'm sorry, a bunch of conventions and speaks on panels and is very nice. So if you see her in the wild, you should say hello politely. Yes, and and I guess. I, if you're interested in delving more into my editorial psyche, uh, <laughs> I, I I will have an article coming out from Uncanny Magazine. Oh, nice. Where I talk about how my secret past as a fan fiction writer, as a teenager, <gasps> influenced me as an editor. So oh, shit. I want to read this really badly. <laughs> yes. So, so that should be out, you know, in the in their next issue. So keep an eye out. Amazing. I'm genuinely excited about reading that. Diana, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. It was very nice to talk to you about this again. Yeah. And then we will talk about it more later. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it is. It has been an absolute delight uh, and totally insightful, too, because I love getting perspectives, you know, from the author's side and from another publishing perspective about how this whole blurb game works. Because sometimes it's like throwing darts and... You know, occasionally you get the bullseye. Most of the time, they might just bounce off. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? And it seems extremely random. Okay, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we appreciate that you came to hear us talk about blurbs on this episode of Graphic Novel TK. In our next episode, we will discuss further mysteries. The mystery specifically of printing. How does printing books work? We will find out in two weeks. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at GraphicNovelTK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com. I've I've previously mentioned on this podcast, Diana is great. Could you really say anything else? Wait, what? Oh, I said, oh, could, no. you, could you really if say I anything I could, else? but she wouldn't be here in the room. <laughs> I would be like, oh, my terrible editor, let us invite her on the podcast. Well, now I'm, like, super tempted. Like, I have to, like, listen to all of your back catalog. Just like, why yes. did she mention me? What did she mention me? I'm like, gosh, I have to know. <laughs>